0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Welcome to Censored. I'm Eva Vrithnach and I'm not afraid to say that I like dirty books. If you'd like to support the show, check out the links in the show notes, there's a Patreon page, I've also got some merch, or maybe you could just leave a review in Apple Podcasts, tell a friend, anything at all. This episode, I'm reading Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. It was published in 1939 and blacklisted the very same year. I chose to read it because it was mentioned in another book I covered back in season 3, Chocolates for Breakfast by Pamela Moore. The teenage heroine Courtney was reading Goodbye to Berlin and I knew this was no accident. Reading in a coming-of-age novel is always very loaded. So this episode partly comes out of my obsession with Chocolates for Breakfast. My edition of Goodbye to Berlin has a fabulously loose woman on the cover. She has a sharp, slick bob and is smoking a cigarette in a long holder. So a contemporary reader would guess there would be loose women, breaking social norms, maybe a bit of debauchery. In fact, if you've seen the film or musical Cabaret, you've enjoyed an adaptation of this book. But when it was first published, the cover art did not give the readers so many clues. The photograph of a park with leafless trees and a few stationary people does not suggest fun and frolics in smoky nightclubs. But I actually like this first edition image because it's taken from a height as if the camera was at an apartment window looking down. This chimes well with a book that opens with a very self-conscious narrative device. On page one, Isherwood writes, I am a camera with its shutter open, quite passive, recording not thinking. The photograph seems to capture some of that impersonal detachment. Goodbye to Berlin is a collection of autobiographical stories about the author's time in that city. He's at pains to tell us that the narrator, Christopher Isherwood, is not the author of the same name, but that feels a bit forced, to be honest. So the stories are centered around a number of vibrantly drawn characters that Isherwood meets, befriends, and sometimes lives with. You could read it as an exploration of types, For example, there's Sally Bowles, a dissolute flapper, and Peter, a tortured gay man trapped both in the closet and in therapy. But nobody is ever a stereotype. It's very atmospheric, and the characters are so sympathetically, tenderly even drawn. I really liked it. I thought it was great. But to chat about the book and why it might be considered rude, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Kemp, author and academic. Jonathan has written three novels and two non-fiction works, and he currently teaches creative writing and comparative literature at Birkbeck. He also DJs and co-founded a theatre company. Thank you for joining me to discuss this wonderful book.
2: You're very welcome, thank you for having me.
1: Normally I begin by choosing a drink that might appeal to the spirit of the book, And this one, there was a lot of booze in it. He talks about the smell of beer and Christopher and Sally drink as much as they can. So I have chosen Prairie Oysters, which is a traditional hangover cure of raw egg, Worcester sauce, vinegar, salt and black pepper. I think it sounds vile, (laughs) but it's something they drank at least four of in the book. It's accompanied when Christopher and Sally are hungover, and they're talking about their problems. And she confesses she's pregnant. And I think that the hangover feels like quite an important mood in this book, and that's why I chose it. But what about you? Do you have any accompaniment suggestions that you might like to offer?
2: I think Sally somewhere says that. Um... It's practically her entire diet is, is the prairie oyster. She's getting her protein and whatever from it. She doesn't eat. That's her meal and her drink and her hangover cure. Um, so, when it came to a, an accompaniment, I, I couldn't think of anything food wise, except maybe some like, you know, uh, homemade sauerkraut or some you know some cheap um, working class kind of food that, that the landlady might provide or that they'd get in a local cafe or whatever. Um, They didn't seem to be existing on anything but Prairie Oysters and and Thin Air. So my answer, if you like, my suggestion is um, very much kind of coming from the film. And I'm just thinking champagne. I'm thinking, you know, the the kind of parting that they do with Maximilian and and the way that champagne very much leads to this kind of, you know, three-way and and kind of lubricates all of that.
1: That quite matches the decadence and the partying.
2: It does. I can I can picture her, you know, glugging it.
1: Yes. She is very much a party girl. Yeah. So when I read it as a censor, mm. putting on this silly censor spectacles argument. And it's one of those special books that manages to offend on page one, which is just brilliant. Mm.
2: Hits the ground running.
1: Yeah, it really does. And it's page one into page two, and I'll just read it out for everyone now. The electric sign is switched on over the night bell of the little hotel on the corner where you can hire a room by the hour. And soon the whistling will begin. Young men are calling their girls. Standing down there in the cold, they whistle up at the lighted windows of warm rooms where the beds are already turned down. They want to be let in. Their signals echo down the deep hollow street, lascivious and private and sad. I thought that was great. I just think it's brilliant.
2: Yeah, there's some wonderful writing in it.
1: And that's my interpretation of why I think they probably didn't get past page one. But there is so much in this book that would offend a censor from the 1930s. Do you want to offer any of your favourite parts that are transgressive?
2: The existence of of, of Sally is, is transgressive. I think for me, what was most striking rereading, it was um, the very kind of present, visible self-censorship that's going on, you know, on, on Isherwood's part. The, 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 the character that shares his name is an invisible man. Um, there, are, there are hints of his homosexuality, and that's kind of coming through with uh, um, conversations with Sally She is taken as given that he has no knowledge about women and what women want from a man, for example. Um, And she she doesn't assume he's going to have any insights into heterosexual relationships at all. But it's um, it's never explained why. And this whole I am a camera, this whole kind of removal of, of the narrator as a person of substance, a person with desires or genitals, um, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's an aesthetic decision that you know, in in a highbrow uh, manner, you can say is is aesthetic and modernist, but um, on one level, it's also a cop out. You know, mm-hmm. the character Isherwood doesn't seem to have any romantic life. It's like he's observing other people's. Mm. You know, I mean, I think uh, the senses would have been bent out of shape by. The, the, the chapter where um, he's holidaying outside of Berlin with um, the, the gay couple, um, I think that would have been very unpalatable and as such is one of my, my favourite bits. The high-blown petty drama of the you know the older man trying to make the younger man respect, honour and, I don't know, just be with him in a way that is going to be impossible. And you kind of think... Um, Surely you should be a bit wiser than that. You know, he's doing what young men would, would do in that situation and not give a fig. So yeah, for me it was about, not necessarily somebody with a red pen going through but, uh, the but Isherwood's red pen. Isherwood's kind of like hesitation and um, reluctance. To to give the, the fictional version of him, the full-blooded experience of Berlin that he had. You know, he said, for me, Berlin means boys, but, You could read that that novel and not see any of that, not assume that that's his um, experience of the city.
1: That's a really interesting point about self-censorship and this kind of reluctance to identify himself and bring himself into the narrative. I mean, he is there, but especially with Sally, you really feel he's holding back. He's holding back so much of their exchanges.
2: Yeah, and it gives them um, leeway when it's becoming a, a, a player, a musical, a filmmaker, to make him or to give him some kind of heterosexual love interest, which is never really there in any pal- palpable sense with with him and Sally. It, it is very much their kind of, although I loathe the term, fag-hag, um, you know, scenario. You know, she's his, you know, confessor. She's his, His, his um, her, her confidante, her, her girlfriend. I mean... I read somewhere they were saying it's like an older sister, even though she's younger. But it's much more like, you know, a gay man and a faggag a bit. It's like the gay man's dialogue has been removed. He's, he's never coming in telling her about you know, last night's shag or anything. And you feel like in, in real life, that would have been going on, probably. They would have been giving her, you know, gruesome details. And... So it, it does very much feel like he's got like, masking tape across his mouth most of the time.
1: It did seem, as the book went on, he came a bit more to the fore, I thought. Like, you felt he was slowly emerging into, like, into a more defined personality that he couldn't sustain that level of invisibility. Uh, when he's in the pub, isn't it, with all the socialists and the radicals and the lefty artists, he said, you know, he seems to be more of a person as a an identity there.
2: Yeah. It's reactive though, is isn't it? It's, it's kind of, Confronted with that, he starts to gain some kind of shape, some kind of definition, some kind of clearer lines. Um, Seen as a whole, it's very interesting that that kind of grand gesture of I'm a camera, that it's unsustainable across the entire book. It, he's, he ceases to be just simply a camera. He ceases to be simply this observing eye, E-Y-E, not you know, the, the, the singular first-person pronoun which is interesting stroke telling of that device itself. That device is unsustainable. And is this Isherwood's subtle um, admitting defeat, that the the narrator has to take shape, that he has to step forward and have some values, some um, characteristics, some beliefs um, that make him a character, uh, not a camera not a kind of impersonal, objective recording machine, but, you know, somebody who's got a, a mind and a heart that um, start to speak and, and express themselves and, and um, uh, defend certain things and put down others. Um, it's, it's heartening on one level because you think you want to applaud, but on the other level, you go back to the page one and you got like, hold on a minute, I thought you were a camera. I the cameras don't kind of t- suddenly tell you what they think or believe about something.
1: That point about reaction. Do you think that the increasing presence of the Nazis in the, in the text is part of why he can't sustain that objectivity? Because it's hinted at at the very beginning, but it just gets bigger and darker and more violent and more dangerous, the presence of the Nazi street violence. And it may be... Is that part of why it doesn't work, do you think?
2: Absolutely. I think, yeah, there is the, um, in the failure of that, you know, standing to one side and and simply scribbling down everything you're observing, there's the recognition that, you know, you can't stand um, neutral in the face of that kind of violence and and, um, right-wing thinking. It's it's, it's a call to arms in some sense, and we're going to kind of, Minor note sense that is, um, I like to think part of the the design, if you like, of the book. That as he encounters and observes in that camera like way an increasing, um, oppression and oppressive environment, that to, to do nothing would be, you know, the wrong thing, it would be abhorrent. So, in that ditching of the neutrality is the emergence of a a political voice. And whilst it's never overtly or expressly about defending gay lives and and, and gay rights, you can't help but read that into it, I think, retrospectively, that this is Isherwood gaining some sense of self that is um, empowering in the face of people who, who want to stitch a pink triangle onto him.
1: Was this book controversial because of the queer content outside of Ireland? I know it's banned in Ireland, but did anyone find it offensive in the reviews? Was there kind of a note of concern about its content or how, how was it responded to?
2: As far as I'm aware, it, it was um, never read in a way that, you know, other coded novels like, you know, The, the, the Picture of Dorian Gray, for example, or... There is a, a a very violent reaction against its um, queer content. I mean, um, while it was a reaction against him rather than the book itself, which is is you know remarkably lacking in queer content in that sense of a, a same sex relationship or or, or um, expressed and, and unambiguous queer content. I, I think it's, it's more. Um, and, and this is because you know you couldn't really, in a sense, criticise a book that was criticising something so abhorrent as, as the rise of Nazis. You had to somehow be seen to be on the right side of history, and to have like you know sliced up the book and, and been mean about it. God, it would have been massively inappropriate. So he gets away with it because it's this big subject that we're, we're all desperate to be seen. To be on the on, on the on the winning side, if you like, the right side. I think it was admired, really, or, or if not admired, then I, I, you would kind of begrudgingly accept that this is an important voice amongst many important voices that are, you know, addressing this historical um, event. So, no, did you have, you were aware of anybody who was, you know, you know, lighting the match to <laughs> Demonstrate that hatred of it?
1: No, it doesn't seem to have been uh, something that offended, in general. No, I mean, obviously, the Irish censor is super sensitive.
2: The, the, perhaps the immorality, and I, the, you know, I am saying that with huge scare quotes of Sally's character. You know, she's nineteen and she's worldly wise. She's you know putting it about. She's surviving from her sexual appeal and her willingness to, you know, jump into bed with a different man each night. But it's not done in a salacious way. It's done in a a gritty kind of like, this is how she would survive in this city at that age. And she's on her own, you know. But people might have had issue with that, certain reviewers.
1: Sally seems like she has such a a dry, but yet a sweet way of looking at a life that she's finding both difficult and enjoyable. It's quite you know, ambiguous, like she's having a good time.
2: And she and she seems to have, you know, wise beyond her years. She's she's kind of the ur she's kind of like the original of a character that feels overly familiar by this point. We feel, I feel like I know her, not only from personal experience, but from other books. And that's interesting because, you know, I couldn't possibly kind of cite one example of like, She's like so and so in, so such and such. But um, she feels very real. And at the same time, she feels a representative of a type.
0: Ready to pop the question? luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: That was one of the things about it that struck me was my first response was, these feel like types, like we're exploring genres or lifestyles, or we're trying to explore certain issues. But then the more like the more I kind of thought about it I felt no that these these characters were richer than that they were more than just a stock and trade you know yeah you know.
2: I mean they're never stereotypes and the originality is in I guess his observation dissection presentation of the margins marginal characters people surviving on their wits on their sex appeal you know doing low-paid menial jobs and and living lives that are often unobserved by, you know, the, the surveillance of literature. I, I mean, that camera thing, that objectivity thing, is the, the only way he could have done it, because it's, it's never salacious. It's never like, oh, look at how these people are living who are you know, eking out the, the, the meanest existences um, of, of poverty and deprivation. And uh, you know, they can't afford to eat out. They're eating prairie also, They're eating raw eggs. You know, <laughs> there's never a sense in which he's kind of directing a reader's response. The unadorned kind of um, presentation of that, opening the door and peering in at a lives um, led usually in in uh, obscurity, is its um, originality. I think because he's making heroes of these people who are victims in some sense of, of, you know, a society that demands certain things of you. And if you're not doing those things or living those lives, you don't get rewarded. And and you kind of want to live, live with, you know, want to be with them rather than with people who, you know, the middle class families, for example.
1: It was interesting how the sex isn't salacious, but the poverty is really physically felt, I thought, like the smells the look of it, the sounds, I mean, frying those sausages and bedbugs, and there was a real physical grittiness.
2: And that scene at the beginning where the the the, uh, the landlady is pointing out the stains in the room and the kind of the narratives behind each one um, is, is a glorious example of like the, the richness of, of, of kind of damage, in a sense, the narrative richness of a life lived and a, you know, the carpet on which that life was lived. <laughs> I think also the the scene where the, the the customers arrive in the bar, and prior to their arrival, everyone's just like sitting around and not doing very much, and suddenly they all snap to attention. And the, the the performative element, the way in which their job requires um, being someone they're not. Their job requires being nice to people by so they don't want to be nice to and. um and that sense in which there is no authentic self in, in in a society run along kind of capitalist lines, that you are a function. And maybe being a camera is a function as well. We're thinking about it now.
1: I did think, you know, that camera device, which we keep talking about, it, which is really so compelling, it did make me think of him also as a tourist.
2: Which he because is. He you know? Yeah, he is. He is slumming at it. He was very... Uh, upfront about that, he wasn't trying to uh, deny it or hide it. Yeah. And he was actively turning his back on, or sticking two fingers or perhaps, you know, the 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 safe, cosy, middle class life back in Cheshire that he he's in it very actively, voraciously left behind. In pursuit of um people and lives worthy of the camera, you know. He could have stayed in Cheshire and then, like, I am a camera here, but he, he didn't want to, you know, those, those dusty, quiet drawing rooms in which nothing ever happens. He wanted to be in the bars with the boys and um, knocking them back till 3am. There is there is that kind of, um, you know, squalid glamour of the book and the, the appeal of that, you know, writ large in the musical with the torn fishnets and the badly applied makeup of the showgirls and whatever that's very much it is very much a kind of bohemian bible it is very much like this is how you do it, you leave the safe cosy middle class background um, and you throw yourself into the deep end you go to the most squalid and probably quite dangerous bars you can find and, and talk to the people there and find out what these lives are like and write about that because nobody wants to read about a bourgeois drawing room in Cheshire really and Sally's having a whale of a time she does a, the high blown drama of of um, poor me a lot of the time and um, she dramatizes even her her tragedies and her poverty um, you know, where would she be without them <laughs> they, they 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 give her a purpose mm. you know survival in in, in um, and and not just survival, but glamorous, stylish survival. Getting to the places that require a prairie oyster, the morning after. You know, this is this is the pursuit of the bohemian. She wants it, however much she might be seen to complain about but the struggle. She wouldn't have it any other way, I don't think.
1: Didn't she leave a boring drawing room lifestyle as well to go have fun on her own? She kind of abandoned her family.
2: Yeah, and God bless those who do. <laughs> Especially if they keep they leave documents of it to inspire others and show examples of other ways of being in the world. And, and it's, it's it's for that that um, I primarily admire the book and admire Ishwood for writing it. Really, that it's kind of a, the door opens on something else that you know just has um, such kind of illicit. And squalid and yet glamorous appeal.
1: <laughs> I mean, I love it. You don't have to persuade me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love it too. And um,
1: So shall we play censorship bingo then? So we start as usual with breasts. I thought there were breasts mentioned in the book.
2: I'm pretty sure there are. And this, doesn't Sally re- refer to her own as being inadequate at some point?
1: There must have been. It just feels like it was, even if I can't. I think we got to tick that one. Mm. Next up is bestiality. Well, no, I don't think it went that far.
2: No. It might have been a, a, a topic of conversation, but we don't see it.
1: We can't tick that, unfortunately. Then sex work. Well, obviously.
2: Yeah. I mean, Peter, in one sense, is, is the, the kind of the gigolo, isn't he? He's, the, he's um, a jumped up rent boy, really, in many ways. It's the older man's flaw, not to see it in those terms, really, Mas- you know, masking it as love or hoping, pretending that it's a relationship other than the financial.
1: And even page one, I mean, there it is, you know, rooms by the hour. So I think we'd have to take that one with bells on.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Racism, well, yes, because anti-Semitism runs through the whole text. Mm. Quite importantly, it grows in importance as 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 it goes on. I think. So we definitely tick that. Drugs. Now, other than booze, I couldn't remember any explicit references.
2: No, no. I mean, the musical makes more of it. You know, the the song Cabaret mentions drugs. But no, it isn't shown here. Again, you you think that it's a a wise decision, perhaps, um, if you want to get it published and if you want to get it sold. But um, it would have been part of the reality of that life and those lives, I imagine.
1: Yes. Yes, I can imagine it. You know, if you're going to that sort of scene, it would make sense. Mm. But I'm afraid for the purposes of bingo, we can't tick it, which is a pity. Then politics. Well, absolutely. With the rise of fascism. Mm. And I found that fascinating that you think that's part of the reason people couldn't complain about it. That it's such a political text. That's just great.
2: <laughs> mm, yes. Lesson to be learned.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Choose the right side. Yeah. And swearing. You see, I didn't remember much coarse language. I think it managed to...
2: Not even in German?
1: No. No, I don't think so.
2: No, they're all very well managed in that respect. They are. Disappointingly, <laughs> so you kind of always want Sally to be a bit more foul-mouthed because... You imagine she would be a kind of. She's reacting against her background, um, and against her femininity, um, and it, you kind of expect her to swear like a trooper, and then she doesn't. She's actually quite well spoken and polite, but but she's talking about the most outrageous things in this frank, candid manner that you, you wouldn't expect a good girl from. Where is she from? Lancashire.
1: Yeah, it's it's not sweary.
2: There's no swearing. But again, I mean, it's often it's, it, it's the, there is an example of the censorship. If he had put it in, it would have been taken out.
1: So uh, infidelity. Well, nobody important is married. So, and I mean, marriage doesn't matter to these people. It doesn't seem like that's an important. We can't take that. And then crime. Well, yes, plenty of crime. Mm. Then genitalia. No, because it's not an explicit. Like you say, it's not salacious.
2: No. Can you imagine that friendship would have evolved like, a candour, perhaps, that that isn't represented?
1: Yes, the uh, sharing of bedrooms. There's a lot of sharing of bedrooms without yeah. saying what people yeah. look like. Yeah. And then there's abortion. Well, yeah, there's a whole section where Sally procures an abortion. Mm. So, yes, definitely.
2: And, that, you know, that would have been pretty outrageous, the, the, just the frank, practical way in which she, she does it.
1: And she even she even fibs to the uh, nurse and says that Isherwood is the father because she couldn't bear to be thought of as a poor abandoned girl. You know, she wanted the respectability of a boyfriend.
2: And it's, it, it's kind of one of those interesting kind of contradictory moments with her because she, she's sticking to up like Isherwood did with uh, at the you know the, the strictures of that background. And yet she, she doesn't want to be seen as uh, abandoned.
1: Yeah, she is contradictory. I mean, that's why she's so great. She's so much fun. Mm, and yeah. And then, orgies. I don't think anyone mentioned them, but you feel like they're a distinct possibility.
2: Yeah, no, Disappointingly lacking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, shame. Then, sexual assault. I don't recall anything. Do you?
2: No. And well, again, I mean, a Sally probably would have been Running the gauntlet every time she stepped outside, you know, as a as a, a woman probably present almost as a prostitute, mm. it would have been part of her reality, but it's not in the book.
1: Yes, I mean he he was gritty, but he only went so far. Yeah. And then the next one is extramarital pregnancy. Well, yes, I mean if Sally needs an abortion, then she must be pregnant. Yeah. Masturbation. I don't think so. Like once again, the shared bedrooms, but.
2: Yeah. Mutual or otherwise, I didn't find any of it, (laughs) really.
1: Sadly, we have to leave that one. And sex toys. No, not that either.
2: (laughs) No, no. Come on, Christopher.
1: (laughs) I mean, Berlin is supposed to be bad and dangerous. (laughs) This one, I've been thinking about feminism. Sally challenges a lot of ideas about, you know, what women should do, but she's not doing it for feminist reasons or anything.
2: Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting. I there must be feminist readings of it or feminist analyses of her p- character. But
1: yes, I think we could probably tick it.
2: I would like to take it. Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't
2: know where Rish would stood with feminism of whether he was deliberately presenting a woman who's you know fighting to live a bolder, bigger life than society was allowing young women to live at that time. I mean, for me, rereading reading it, it was shocking to be reminded that she's only 19.
1: She seems so much older.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, very capable of um, surviving.
1: And the next one is divorce. Well, definitely not, because marriage doesn't feature. So I think we could leave that out. And then contraception. I didn't notice anything, not even a discussion of its existence.
2: Which is something that, you know, you think might have gone on. I mean, the yeah. landlady recommends, does she recommend an abortionist?
1: Yes, she does. Yeah.
2: So, you know, they they might have had a discussion because, you know, she's no innocent.
1: <laughs> In spite of her full respectability. Mm. And then next up is menstruation. Well, no,
2: no. But presumably if you're having pregnancies, <laughs> then it's, it's just curry.
1: It's implied. <laughs> <laughs> and then blasphemy. Well, apart from the fact that the whole thing, if you were religious, is blasphemous. See above. (laughs) (laughs) See the abortions and the sex work and...
2: (laughs) Yeah, extramarital pregnancy. (laughs) Take your pick, really. But no, I don't recall any kind of like explicit use of the Lord's name in vain.
1: No, and there's no attempt to challenge the the concept of Christianity. It's just ignored.
2: Mm, It's just a deeply unchristian book. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully.
1: And the next one is oral sex. No, because it's not really explicit about what people are doing with their each other's bits.
2: Yeah, I was trying to kind of think, is there, is there even just one whiff of it, as it were, in some of Sally's stuff? Because, you know, she's pretty bold in her subject matter. But no, no, no blowjobs.
1: And the next one, definitely graphic violence, because there's some awful street violence further on in the book where isn't someone's eye gouged out in a brawl with um, Nazi dudes? Mm. It's really gross. Yeah.
2: So it, it links with the politics as well, interestingly. It's like snakes and ladders as much as bingo.
1: Yeah, definitely. So we'd have to take that. Mm. Finally, queer content. Well, obviously.
2: Great gay classic or whatever. And you look at it, it's threadbare, really, in terms of being explicit in any sense. It's all kind of like hinted at. And here again, it's, because we know Issue would. Um, went to Berlin to sleep with as many boys as he could get his mitts on. Um, that we read it in that way, but you know, the central sexual relationships that are presented to us as readers are straight, really. Isha would, you know, the character is never given the chance. He's kind of this asexual, um, non-entity. And yet you know, the, some, it's, it's all kind of coded or veiled in, it's, it's just a celebration of, la vie de bohren, you know, in that sense of, like, quick run as far as you can get away from the boredom and and the strictures of your home life and, you know, have some adventures. I'm sure sure it inspired many people to necessarily move to Berlin. (laughs) But um, but to to be bolder in terms of not doing what was expected of them, they certainly played a part um, like that for me.
1: Well, it's been wonderful going through this book with you, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for giving me the time and discussing Christopher and Sally and all their shenanigans.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to spend some time with them again.
1: that i forgot to tally up the score for goodbye to berlin it was 10 out of 25 which is very respectable it's nice to know it wasn't banned for nothing so this episode marks the end of season five and i'm taking a little break i need a holiday from reading like a censor i'm worried those joyless dickheads are taking me over and i want to be in top form for season five because it will be so interesting I'm doing an extended deep dive into Edna O'Brien's The Country Girls trilogy, one episode per book. O'Brien is central to the story of censorship in 1960s Ireland, and she's still writing and still annoying people. The Irish male writer I've chosen will be Brian Moore, who is entirely new to me, so that's exciting. Then there's a prosecution of the Irish Family Planning Association that made headlines in the 1970s, because the courts unexpectedly stopped the censorship board working. I also plan to talk about a smut-laden bestseller from 1919 that mysteriously was never blacklisted. So many books to explore. I'm looking forward to season six already. Talk to you again in September, but in the meantime, keep your hands squeaky clean and your minds absolutely filthy.